millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. podcast series two with me Charles McGarry. A few years back around the time I signed a publishing deal with Berlin for my first Leo Moran murder mystery The Ghost of Helen Addison a different publisher Backpage Press decided to produce a podcast about my journey from bedroom to bookshelf. It was called Simply Debut and as fate would have it Backpage are publishing my third Leo Moran book, The Mystery of the Strange Piper, which comes out on September the 16th, 2021. Debut was steered by Neil White, and now I am taking over the reins and plan on chatting with other authors about their initial forays into a career of crime writing. This time, I chat with a real heavyweight of crime fiction, the brilliant Denzel Myrick. Denzel's DCI Daily series has sold millions, yes, millions, of copies. Not bad for a lad from faraway Campbelltown. His latest book, a standalone urban gangland thriller called Terms of Restitution, came out on September the 2nd, 2021. But, of course, I wanted to focus on Denzel and DCI Jim Daly's debut Whiskey from Small Glasses. What a title, by the way. And what a book. Denzel, thanks for joining me and welcome uh, to the debut podcast. First of all, congratulations on your latest release, Terms of Restitution, which came out yesterday which I'm greatly looking forward to reading. Denzel, it's not a DCI Jim Daly book. Can you tell us a little bit more about it, please? Sure, uh, Charlie. It's um, actually a new concept for me. It's a gangland novel set in Paisley, or Paisley, London, in Italy, to be precise. One of my biggest inspirations was The Sopranos, and I, and I still say that when people ask me about the daily books mm-hmm. and it's that mixture of sort of visceral crime and humour and quirkiness if you like uh, and not just the protagonist being this um, one note evil kind of guy but also you know has a family has a life has children has problems like the way all of us do um, so it's a rounded character there's plenty of humour in the book as well as there is in the daily books and so I just wanted to do something based around that as a one-off. I had a lot more time during lockdown. So instead of sitting about watching box sets or 
playing the guitar, I decided to to, to try and write another book. I actually rewatched The Sopranos during lockdown or the beginning of lockdown. Uh, bought all the box sets. It was just won- yeah. wonderful watching them again. Kind of exploring them a bit more now. There's a there's a really good podcast which you're probably aware of. Uh, a couple of the actors, Michael Pivioli and Steve Shapiro. Yeah, and talking Sopranos, it's yeah. it's really well done, and they've, of course they've got a different guest on the show on each week, uh, and that kind of um, you know it takes you back to the show. But I've, I also rewatched it recently as well, and you miss it's amazing what you missed or maybe even forgot or didn't get in the first place. Yeah, because the writing the writing's just so good. We're here to talk, however, about your first novel and your journey to that, which is a DCI Jim Daly or. I should say, <coughs> D.I. Jim Daly is at, at first in the book. Um, yes. Whiskey from small classes. It's almost 10 years now. In this series, I want to talk to authors I speak to about their past lives, about before they were a published author. And among other trades, you were actually a police officer in Glasgow. Is that right, Denzel? Yes, I was, though. Before they had computers and phones, never mind the DNA. I've got a quote here that I found from you online. And you said, I'm glad to see many police officers have said to me that they love my books because of the way the characters speak to each other. I think this is where some writers go wrong. Even in some television series, there are these very earnest characters who are always speaking in acronyms and looking at each other with furrowed brows. That's not the way the police or any, any of the emergency services handle their day. There has to be an element of black humour in the police as there is in the ambulance and the fire services, just to help people who are human beings with all the frailties that that entails get through their day. So your time in the police influenced your writing. It's given it an authenticity. And I think we warm to your central character, DCI Jim Daly, because he rings authentic. Can I ask you, Denzel, what influences converge to create Daly? Um, a lot of influence from the police, although, as I say, not so much from the the more recent um, uh, advances in, in DNA and forensic technology, but also from, um, you know, they're, they're talking about we had old radios. That's how we communicated. We still were given a whistle when I was in the police. Really? So, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know when they stopped issuing whistles, but I'm talking the mid-'80s, and they still issued whistles. And that was in case your radio gave up the ghost, which they did often because they were terrible, uh-huh. and um, you could whistle your way out of trouble, or so they reckoned, as the old police officers have done uh-huh. since the, you know, the turn of the century. Um, but, but I think more or less, as I say in that quote, it was the idea of people being able to, uh, you know, to know how police officers spoke to each other, and how, what it felt like to be a police officer in a police station or on a case or wherever and that's where again as I say in that into that that quote that that I I find some um, especially in TV police procedurals just so unrealistic it's all this dead earnestness and and, and everything's really dour and, dour. Mm-hmm. and that just simply doesn't happen because you're flung into some of the worst situations that you can possibly imagine uh, as a police officer, and if there wasn't for dark humour, people would people break as it is. Mm-hmm. But 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 as this goes on, 
you'd have to have a it's like a release valve. It's like you know a, a, a pressure cooker. There has to be there has to be a release for all that tension and dark humour. Sometimes appropriate, sometimes inappropriate goes on within the police, uh, and that's and I'm sure it happens. I know it happens within the fire service and the ambulance service as well because they also face dreadful incidents and mm-hmm. terrible things, and so it's. It's just, I think it's just a natural human response. Daily Psychic, who is his ally, is DS Brian Scott. A very different character from uh, Daily, but complementary, and they're fiercely loyal to each other. Can you talk a bit about Brian, his character, and, and was, were there any influences, any people that you maybe based him on? Or was that a confluence of people? Yeah, I think everything else... Charlie, it's as it a confluence of people that you're you're involved with. You know, you're always on the lookout for different quirks in people and different aspects of people that you can you can use to, to influence your writing. And I did know some people. In fact, I'm a member of a private police officers group on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And the general consensus of opinion is on that that everybody's worked with somebody like Brian Scott. Mm-hmm. And I think he's a kind of universal character in the police. They've all, you've all worked with somebody who has that sort of laissez-faire attitude to their work, to the people they deal with. It's make, do and mend. It's the old-fashioned cop in many ways. Mm-hmm. Who wasn't hide but bound by rules, regulations, and the police is an entirely different job than it was when I was in it. Uh, and it's not just because of advanced technology, it's because of the way they go about their business. And I don't think... You know, I, I can't imagine what it must be like to work as a police officer now mm-hmm. uh, with all the constraints that are involved um, in policing. Um, it's just it's just beyond my, my ken, if you understand what I mean. I suppose Brian Scott, in a sense, he doesn't need, it doesn't matter that he's unencumbered by the rule book because he doesn't particularly want he's, the promotion, he doesn't want to climb the greasy pole, he just wants to do his job more or less at the level yeah. he's doing it at. I mean, you get that in every career... Um, and you know, people, a lot of people I know in different jobs have regretted stepping up a level even though they get more money that they, um, they can't be doing with um, all the paperwork for starters and the bureaucracy and, um, sure. and nowadays of course you're so constrained by PR and everything else you had a varied career, it wasn't just the police you were involved in um, prior to writing can I ask, did you, did you always write Denzel or did you always just feel that you could give it a go and if so, was it always just crime writing that you were interested in? Well, I wasn't actually interested in crime writing at all, Charlie, mm-hmm. which may surprise you. I, 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 I'd always written in some form, I suppose. I did a bit of freelance journalism. I was involved in business for a long time. I, I wrote a lot of copy for businesses I was involved in. And when I was a kid, I wrote song lyrics and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I was, I suppose in one way or another, I'd been writing all through my life, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the ambition had always been to write a book. It's a difficult one, one to, to to say when you when you actually get the idea to write a book. But I get ill um, and suffer from bad arthritis, and with arthritis comes a thing called flare-ups. And um, one of these flare-ups happened to me in late two thousand, sort of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. <clears throat> and when you get them, you can barely. You can barely move, never mind, you know, work. Um, so I was sitting basically in bed. The furthest I could make was the toilet and back. And I thought, I can't stand this. I mean, there's only much, so much 
so many videos you can watch, so many books you can read, so much radio you can listen to, or music, or whatever. Uh, and I thought, well, if you want to write a book, this is the time. And so I decided to write a book. Now, I wanted to write an historical novel at this point. Um, but what happened was um, I thought, well, to do justice to an historical novel, as you know, you've got to do research to make sure that you're, you know the period's correct, the, the, you know, the way people speak is correct, the, the environment's right. And that takes you a long, long time. And having done all that, you don't even know if you've got the discipline to write a book. Because as people know, writing a book isn't easy. So I decided to go back to the old maxim of write what you know. And I knew about the police because I'd been in it, and I knew Kintyre intimately well because that's where I grew up. And so I decided just to combine the two and write the police procedural set in Kintyre. And that's how it happened. Talking about Kintyre, you're from Campbelltown, and a fictionalised version of which Kinloch is the central stage of your books. I, I, I suspect that your affection for the town and for Kintyre comes through in your writing. I've got a wee quote here from Whiskey from Small Glasses, which I reread just in the last week. The locals had a fierce loyalty to their town, and despite the remoteness of the place, thought there was nowhere like it. A kind of relationship to home and hearth that had all but disappeared elsewhere. Um, when 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 you wrote this book, were you had you lived away f- from Campbelltown for a long time, or you know did it loom large in your imagination? Yeah, I mean, I mean I've lived in Campbelltown on and off for many years, and I have really lived away from the town now for twenty years. So at the time I was writing Whiskey from Small Glasses, uh, I'd, I'd been away for almost ten years or round about there. Um, but I used to go back to and fro, you know. Uh, and it, just, it was something I missed. And, and one of the things you do notice immediately when you come from a, a, a place like Camelton and you go to, say, Glasgow or any, or any urban area or anywhere in the central belt um, is that it's different. Because mm-hmm. if you walk down the street in Camelton, everybody knows who you are. Everyone yeah. knows who your granny was. Everyone knows your business. Everyone knows what they, about you or what they think they know about you. Um and so there is that feeling of, I had a friend who said to me once, it's not so much like a community is a big family. And I always think that's, that's quite accurate. When my, my father and mother died very close together within 17 days of each other, um, both sadly of cancer way back in 2002, and they both died, my, my mother in Paisley and my father in the beach in Glasgow. When I came back home, on the, I came back down in the plane that morning, because I'd rushed up in the plane purely because of time's sake um, and things were getting, things got bad very quickly in the case of my father. And I arrived back down in the plane and I thought, well, I've got nothing in the house. So I had to go to to the local Tesco supermarket. And it took me, I swear to Charlie, three and a half hours to get around Tesco because everybody I met stopped me and asked yeah. him, you know, it's expensive expressed their condolences and how sad they were to hear about my folks and everything that was going on. And, you know, I, I got back and I put the stuff away and I sat down in the uh, lounge and I just cried because, you know, I was ready to, for what was going to happen to my mum and dad because they'd been ill for a long time and I knew they were terminally ill. But it was just that outpouring of, of uh, kindness sure. that really got to me. And I don't think I've ever really spoken about this too much. But... Um, it was that that, that, that that real feeling of belonging that, that uh, 
it really set me off, I think. And it still brings a tear to my eye now when I think about it. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lovely experience. Of course, being living in such a, a kind of claustrophobic atmosphere um, has its downsides as well. I mean, sure. day, you know, people are very keen to know what you're doing or what you have done, and there's a lot of gossip and things like that. But, but I think there's too much made of that. I think the real, the really nice thing is the fact that when when you're really in need, people are there for you. You're not just writing about some completely created place. You're not just writing about another part of Scotland or, or the world that you're not from. You're writing about this place that you're emotionally interconnected with. What's that like? Does that present a challenge to you, or is it is it something you enjoy doing? Or well, well, of course, I'm not writing directly about Campbelltown. I'm sure. writing also about about it's up so it's a thinly veiled Campbelltown. It's a fictitious Campbelltown, if you like, because the things that happen in my books uh, would never happen in the real place, as you as you know. So for me, it's almost like a homage to the place with this layer of, of violence and um, horror going on all the way through and the crimes and everything else. But there's also a wee bit... I love the warmth of the people coming through, mm-hmm. which is genuine. People used to say Campbelltown was back in the 50s when we were in the 80s. So I suppose now we're in the 2020s. It's back in the... What, 1990s. I, don't, I think it's. I think it's thought there's an element of back in the 50s because of that that spirit of community which has gone from so many other places. And so that's that was the main thing I was trying to get across when I was describing the books. When I was trying to describe the community and describe the feeling of the community and the relationship we all had with each other, and why it was so hard for a stranger to break in sure. to that tight knit group. I mean, my father lived in Campbell. He was Welsh. He lived in Campbellton for 40 years, on and off, because he was in the Royal Navy. And he was still referred to his mother's husband or my father. He was never given his own name, you know. There's Denzel's father. Oh, there's Elspeth's man. And I think that kind of... 40 years is a long time to spend in the one yeah. one place, not even to get your own name, you yeah. know. That's funny. <laughs> and uh, I've... I, my my latest book, which comes out in a couple of weeks, it's set on a thinly veiled place in Argyll. It's actually set in the Isle of Butte, but I've called it something different. And now it's not quite the same because I didn't live there, but we spent all our childhood holidays there in this village. Me and my family, my extended family, we've got really warm memories of the place, and it was it was different from my other two books because this time it, there was that real affection that came through for the place. Um, mm. and it's good in a way because you hear about a lot of Scottish writers or, or just Scottish people who leave small town or small village Scotland and you know they kind of maybe look down on their origins a little bit you know and are glad to be a shot of the place and maybe just mm. maybe just focus on the, the negatives uh, I, I am, I'm reading The Mystery of the, the Strange Piper your new book and I'm really enjoying it it is very very good um, and I can see, and I think that the same thing comes through in your writing there about your fictitious elephants comes through, and hopefully my my books in Kintyre. Um, and it's not something that everyone can pull off. You know, you knew the place from your holidays, and I knew the the place I was writing about because of my my intimate connection with it, um, having lived there for so long. So you know, I I wonder how how easy it is to do with a place you had no connection with. So somebody who's never lived in I don't know, Selkirk, 
trying to write a book about Selkirk. Um, and and that, that must be quite a difficult job. And I've just used Selkirk currently completely off the top of my head. Um, but I think there is that quality. I think there's an increasingly... There's a, there's a kind of move towards cosy crime fiction in, in publishing at the moment. And it's not some, it's not something I think is a good move because there's no such thing as cosy crime. Crime's... Crime's always nasty, whatever it, whatever takes place, whatever it is, and to give it this cosy epithet, I think is rather misleading. Um, so, if you're going to write a crime novel, in my book, you have to write a crime novel that's authentic to what crime is really like. Yes, you can add funny passages, and you can add you can describe the scenery and everything else that goes with it, but the heart of the book is crime, and I think you're doing a disservice to people to try and turn crime or murder into entertainment for entertainment's sake. I think these books have got to reflect, you know, the reality of what crime really is, unless you're going out to write, a, a, you know, a book on magical realism or something like that. And, you know, the, the, it's intentionally unrealistic. But, but um, purveyors of cosy crime, for me, I just don't think the two, the, you know... They don't go together. It's a contradiction, and I think that one way that you denote the reality of crime is by um, giving the the victim's family some airtime. So, for example, spoiler alert: the the dead woman in, in whiskey from small glasses, Izzy Watson. We see the reaction, the visceral grief of her husband, and mm. who's away at the time, but comes back and. You know, he has to identify the body. Of course, she's left children as well. So, I think that's really important that you know that you don't that you don't just have the crime, have the body as this kind of faceless individual that you um, show the ripples uh, that that go out from that crime. It's also good to remember that um, when something like that happens to a member of a family, quite often and more often than not, unless it's happened somewhere, obviously and. You know, the members of the family are the first people the, the police suspect. Um, naturally, because... It know, usually is. The, yeah, the old saying is true that you're usually murdered by somebody that you know. Hmm. Um, and, and and that puts even more pressure on, on the family of murdered people because it's very easy to quickly realise that you're under suspicion unless, you know, there's, there's, you've got some um, great um, reason to the contrary that they for them not to suspect you. Uh, so the, it all adds up into, a, a, you know, it's such a traumatic death in, in any event within a family is is a, a hugely traumatic experience. For it, for it to happen by by um, force of murder, it's it's almost volcanic in its its um, effect on mm. family and friends. Denzel, you spoke about writing the book and the circumstances that, that led to that. How about actually getting published? What was what was your story there? Uh-huh. Um, I was, I'm not going to name them, but I was published by the worst publishers in the world when I first started off. And they couldn't get the... I was lucky enough to get Book of the, the Week in the Christmas edition of the Herald magazine. Right. 
um, with Whiskey from Small Glasses and its original, from its original publisher. Um, but they couldn't get the book into Waterstones or any other bookshop. They couldn't get the book into onto Amazon. And they couldn't get, the Amazon price for the, for the book was something nearly, it was nearly £9. But even at that, it got to be number one in Scottish Crime and Kindle, which was an astonishing thing to have happened, considering most of the books were about two quid, three quid, four quid at the very most. I mean, these were the, before the days of ultra discounting, which we see now, um, when people expect to buy books at 99 pence on Kindle as a matter of course, which I'll talk all day about to you if you want, but it's not a not very exciting subject. It got to the stage where I was so disillusioned with what was going on that I said to myself, right, I said, I'm not, I'm not um, writing anymore. It was so stressful, so disappointing. You know, I don't know what you felt like when your first book was published, um, Charlie, but I dare say it would be, you'd be thrilled and you'd be excited and all the things that, and proud of yourself and all the things that go along with that. Um, but when it turns sour in the way that it did with me and this company, um, it's really, really, it really hits, hits you where it hurts. And then uh, Hugh Andrews from Polygon, from Berlin, Polygon, came over the hill on a white charger. He'd read the book on a train journey from Glasgow to London, and he loved it that much. He got in touch with me, and he said, "Well, you know, why isn't there, why isn't this book more widely, widely available?" And we met, and that was the sort of end of the bad bit of the story, mm-hmm. really, um, because they took the book now into selling millions, which has been very grat- gratifying for the series. But you know, I don't think anybody ever expects that to happen. But you just want a fair shot at it. Of course. And I think that's it's a salutary lesson for young writers or aspiring writers of any age. Be very careful what you do. I think the instant, I think these days the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction is to self-publish. But you know, I don't care what anybody says. It's not much money to be made at self-publishing. Mm-hmm. These people have to be on it all the time and have to spend huge amounts of money um, trying to promote their books and a huge amount of time promoting their books. And also, uh, they're paid, Kindle pay them unlimited. The payment structure is, I think it was at not point not not nine pence a page read. It's what they're, you know, it's what they're paid on. For me, that's just usury, if you like. Uh, and I'm not surprised the bigger traditional companies have, have, have issued um, Kindle Unlimited. And because people, you know, professional writers just Thole that. Uh, so my advice would to be to get your book as good as you can, get it around agents and publishers that accept you know unsolicited unsolicited material, and and do it that way and and give yourself a shot at traditional publishing. I think from there are some wonderful writers who are self published. L. J. Ross is one of them. She's a great writer and she's done well. But always give your she's the exception to the rule rather than the, the standard. Um, so give yourself a chance and go for traditional publish. Try and get yourself traditionally published because I think it's the only way. I think that's good advice. And on the subject of advice to aspiring authors, could you? Is there anything you could say about the process of writing that you would pass on? A good habit, for example, or any tips? I think I think you must suit yourself, your former. I mean, I'm a I'm a I start off writing a book with just a thread of an idea. I have an idea of a rough beginning, middle and an end. And all, and quite often, in fact, more often than not, that end changes as the book um, develops. But my only piece of strong advice would be is 
to write and to write regularly. Uh, don't just sit there and say, oh, Philip, you need today and write a couple hundred words. Then, you know, set yourself a target. I would say around 1,500 words a day is, is a reasonable amount of words to get through. I, I do around maybe 2,000 these days because I'm so in the habit of it now. Um, but do that and do that at least five days a week. Have, have a, get yourself into um, a habit, get yourself into a routine. Because if you don't, you know, if you don't, um, write and write regularly you're not going to be able to write you know if you know what I mean you're training yourself into into the swing of doing your job it's like any other apprenticeship you're desperately trying to you know, get, get the self that self-discipline and, and yeah um, get yourself organized to be able to do something and do it right otherwise it's it's very it's incredibly difficult to get right and you'll just start to founder you know you look at your word pro you know your number of words in your manuscript you'll think well I've been working on this for six months and I've only got 20,000 words yeah. done and I need another 80 to finish a book. Whereas if you're writing on a regular basis and the word count builds up and it builds up and builds up and builds up, you know, that inspires you to write more. I think, I think anyway, I might be wrong, that's just my opinion. Well, I think you're right because I think a lot of people who you speak to who say, you know, I'd like to write a book, but it's the scale of the task. And it's like any other task, like the Chinese proverb, you know, the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Sure, one step, yeah. And it's yep. you have to break it into its component parts, and that goes down into a day's work. And if you can even write a few hundred words a day, but you do it three hundred days a year, you you, you mm. could you could have a novel length manuscript at the end of it. I guess one, if I could pass on a bit of advice to writers, it would be that a lot of your time is spent editing text. It's not just the creation of the manuscript and. <coughs> One, one. Um, it, this isn't my idea. I read it somewhere, but there was someone who um, they would write their quotient for that day, and then the next day, uh, before they started writing again, they would look back on what they'd written the previous day and edit it. And that way, it's percolated in the mind overnight as you're unconscious, and yep. you improve it. You really see it with fresh eyes, and then you start the that day's word, word count. And I think that way that when you come to the editorial process with an editor and with a proofreader, um, the thing's going to be in a lot better state than it otherwise would. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Right. I, first thing I do in the morning is review the, word, the words I wrote previous mm-hmm. day. Um, and, you know, people talk a lot about first, first uh, drafts and second. I don't think that really exists anymore because with with IT and the way it is now, your your manuscript evolves rather than rather than yes, you know happens in sporadically in stages. So it does happen in that kind of staged way it did in the past because you would you had to literally type it out in paper and then check it and change it and then maybe you did it all in once and then reviewed it and then you had a second draft. That doesn't happen now, I don't think. I think you're right. I think that is just the power of word processing. It's just you know. Yeah. Um, it's just so. Yeah. It's just such an amazing tool, and I mean, I don't, I don't know how I would have done in the old days of either pen and ink or a typewriter. I, I think I probably, <laughs> I don't think I would have had the perseverance because I changed so many things. And also, the thing about looking back on the previous days or any previous written stuff is it's going back to it with fresh eyes. It sparks new ideas, doesn't it, Denzel? Well, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm at the stage now of writing the 10th daily and I'm at that three quarter of the way through stage and at that point I always stop and I read the entire book that I've written to to date and 
quite often you'll find things you want to change because <clears throat> you've made a mistake in the, in the timeline or you there's a mistake in the, there's a plot hole or something like that. Or you can tweak things to make it better and more more fluid. And and, and I think that's a, I never ever write to the end of a book without reading what I've about, mm-hmm. about the for me it's the the eighty seventy five eighty thousand word mark because the daily novels come in around. 105 to 110,000 words. Uh, so I think, as far as editors and, and proofreaders are concerned, I think proofreaders are exceptionally important because I don't care who you are, you're going to get, you're going to make mistakes, and that's that's one of the most important things I think in publishing or proofreading, and and editing from a structural from a, a structural point of view, I, as in the grammar and the you know the syntax and everything else that you do. I think that's handy. But when it comes to editing from, I don't think you should do this, I think you should do that, I've got no time for that. Because because why should they know better than I do? I, I've written the books. And how many books have they written that have sold over a million copies? That's my attitude to, to editors. I think, well, that's fair enough. I think you've earned that right there. So. <laughs> I um, think everybody should have that right. Because, you know, unless they spot something that's, that's, that's really wrong, like a plot hole, for sure. instance, um, or, you know... A character, or or, or say, a, a, say a scene you've got that's wrong, in a, from the point of view of a crime novel, procedurally, or, or it just couldn't happen. Well, that is impossible. You know whether I want to write about six ducks in a pond and they want four, and I've had ridiculous comments like that. I had one editor who this is quite early on in my career, and she saw fit. Daly was looking out of his his window, and he the, the island at the end of the loch. You know, because I've all this in my head when I'm writing it, because I know the topography and geography of the town, and I know exactly where everything is. And so this is playing in my head as, as I write it. So, so Daly's good. He's looking out his window, and he's got the island at the head of the log on his, on his left. And she changed it to right. And I says, no, it's, it's his left. She says, I think it would be better if it was right. And I said, what, what do you know about this? I mean, why could you make a comment like that? I mean, why would you possibly think that would be the right thing to do? I said, it's the left that it stays. So I've had so many exasperating times. Thankfully now I've got an editor called Nancy Weber, who's edited some of the biggest names in the business, Lee Child and and Peter James and and people like that. And she's a fabulous editor. She's, she's, um, I I know she won't mind me saying she's no spring chicken now, but she's most certainly one of the the most adept editors I've ever worked with. And she's very light touch in terms of anything like that. You know, if she spots something that you've done wrong, and she, she's not fight, afraid to say it, but she's not going to make ridiculously cosmetic. I don't think you should have this, and I don't think he should be wearing those clothes, or I don't think that he should be walking up the street instead of down it. You know, I, I just have no absolutely no time for that nonsense. Because this is about debut and, and starting off, I've seen you at events, and you're always really entertaining and very relaxed on stage. You seem to really enjoy the experience of engaging with your many fans. Was this always the case? Or how did you feel about it at first, about things like that, about publicity and events and book launches and all the rest of it? I think as I touched on earlier, Charlie, I'd I'd played in bands and things as I was young. And so, you know, being on stage wasn't something that was new to me. But it took me a wee while, I must admit, because it had been a while to get back into it again, you know. Um, and it's a different thing standing with a guitar and singing into a microphone than it is sitting in front of a of a crowd of book lovers at a festival, for instance. And I've appeared in front of some big crowds now, but none is not as big, I don't think, as it did when I was 
play in the thing. And I think I think it was five or six hundred at their last Edinburgh festival that I spoke at, which was great. And it's great to get the reaction from the crowd. As and, that, and that's the same feeling you get when you're playing in a band or on stage doing something else. You know, it's that 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 reaction never alters. It never changes. It's always the same feeling that you get. I think it didn't take me long to get back in the swing of it. You know, I think and I think if you don't have a wee bit of butterflies in the stomach before you go up onto stage, I don't think you'll do your give your yeah. best shot because. But but I think if you're uptight, um, alternatively, um, that passes on to the, the, makes the, the audience anxious as well. And I've appeared with two or three people in my time doing this who were very anxious, and you could see the crowd. So when they started to speak, going on the you know sitting at the front of their seat, and nobody wants them to do badly. But some people are just better at that kind of thing than others. And I'm fortunately, I've, uh, I've having done it been in the public, I've done that kind of thing, been on stage, it was much easier for me to do than I suppose it is for some other people. Mm-hmm. Because I know some people actually dread being on stage. But it's great to interact with audience. I know, of course, it's something we've been missing over the last 18 months, 19 months, however long it's been. And um, it's a great pity. You'll be looking forward to getting back into it. And just lastly, Denzel, future plans, what's the next? Is it a DCI daily you're working on at the moment? Yeah, we have to have a DCI daily every year or... or um, There'd be riots, I think. <laughs> I mean, every every year, as soon as I've... These ideas dailies always get published in the spring, late, late May, early, early June. And as soon as one comes out, I can guarantee within a few days, somebody will say, I hope you're working the next one. When's the next one? Get your finger out, which is something I cannot stand. You know, get, you know, get, well, we want another one. It's really nice that people want the books, but this constant... Irritation get, get gets to me yeah, as, yeah. as I as I pointed out, people, you know, I've just you've just had one, you know, so you won't get another one till this time next year. And I think that comes a lot from self publishing as well, where these some of these guys are chucking out four, five, six, seven novels a year, and with the best one in the world, nobody can write seven novels a year or more without a not doing it justice, or b not doing it all yourself. And uh, I think that that. You know, the certain individuals that, that do employ right people to write on mm-hmm. their behalf, and that's an accepted fact, I believe. Well, one book a year is a lot. It's an awful lot of work, and it is your life, and uh, there's other things you need to get along with as well. I guess when you've released a book six months ago, it feels like yesterday, and someone's asking you when the next one's coming out. Um, it puts an undue pressure on you. Well, I mean, I think through lockdown, as I say, I had more time to, to write, and so I did write more. I mean, I wrote Terms of Restitution, which is which was just out yesterday, in hardback and, and e-book, and it'll be out in paperback and audio soon as well. Uh, but also, I've written I'm on I've written two novellas based on a young Hamish, who's one of the characters from the Daily Books. But these are very different. Books. These are more akin to something like the Parahandy or Comte de Mackenzie or Whiskey Glow, that kind of stuff. Much more light-hearted, not quite nostalgic because they're set in the 60s. And that's a refreshing thing to do as well. I, I wouldn't want to write more than one daily book a year because you want to give every book you're writing your best shot that that particular series. And I think that if you're trying to push them out, you're bound to get fed up with it. And if you get fed up with it, with it your readers are going to get fed up as well. From that point of view, I, I, I seriously believe that there's, there's, it's becoming two industries. I think there's people who write for the electronic 
um, reader uh, and the you know the ninety nine pence side of the market, and there's writers who write for for cross platforms, and yeah, the twain shall meet because the payment structures are so different. You know, I can survive easily on a on a one book a year, even though I've written more than that. But you know, if you're self published and you're relying on that constant input all the time, you need to write lots of books a year. And some people who are published are in a digital contracts where they're required to write three or four books a year, though that's much more professionally done through editors and, and proofreaders and sound publisher, publishers like, uh, I don't know, Hera and people like that who are very good. I've got a great friend of mine is Emma Clapperton who writes under the pseudonym of Alex Kane. And she's a fantastic writer and she never stops writing all the time. And I and then she's got a job too. She's in, she works in a nursery. She's a nursery nurse. I don't know how she ever does it. She, I, I must doff my cap to her because I think that's spectacularly good stuff, you know. And then you've got Douglas Skelton that kind of writes maybe three sentences a week, and eventually he gets to his book at the end of the year. Put on Douglas Skelton. God bless. <laughs> it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you, and I think that anyone who's an aspiring author. Well, I've taken something from this. It's been really great. And I, I just want to wish you all the very best with terms of restitution and your work on the new Jim Daly novel. That's very kind of you, Charlie. I'd like to thank you as well and wish you every success with your new book, uh, The Mystery of the Strange Piper. Um, I think I'm sure it's going to be, be a great a great success um, because I'm certainly enjoying it so far too. Thanks a million, Denzel. a great insight into a great writer. There was superb advice for budding authors and I just loved listening to Denzel championing authenticity in crime novels. He achieves this authenticity by fictionalising the place he knows most intimately and drawing on his time spent in a vocation that had a profound effect on him. Thanks again Denzel and thanks to my brother Michael for the groovy music. Bye for now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.